All right, so I have a confession to make. Last week, we enjoyed an amazing chat with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Bob Crone, who told the story how he managed to safely fly 100 fighter missions over Vietnam back in the day. Plus, we talked about the SpaceX human launch to the ISS, as well as Colonel Crone's Kepler Space Institute. But I never asked him a very key question about his fighter missions over North Vietnam. So if you have not heard that interview, I hereby grant you permission to stop right here, go back to episode four called SpaceX Leads the Way to hear the full chat with the colonel and then come back to hear this episode as a follow-up. Heck, for that matter, if you haven't already listened to all four previous episodes, I urge you to do so now. You'll find, in many ways, every episode builds towards the next. Hello, everybody, and welcome aboard episode number five of our Flight to Reality. I'm Jay Rollins, and this is your captain speaking. You recall the last episode we chatted with Colonel Bob Crone and the story behind his 100 safe F-105 raids across North Vietnam. But I never got around to asking him the key question as to how he didn't get shot down. In fact, with so many safe missions, I began to wonder if he actually got shot at at all. So let's start Friday's flight by circling back to get answers. Then we'll contrast Bob's experience over Southeast Asia with my own, including my flights in one of the most challenging airports in the area, namely Kai Tech International, the old Hong Kong airport. And then we'll chat with an active flight attendant to find out what's going on at the airlines today. So first, let's pop the question to Bob Crone. So last, uh, last week with our SpaceX show, we introduced Bob Crone, Colonel Bob Crone, Dr. Bob Crone. He is the F-105 fighter pilot from Vietnam. And I forgot, uh, I'll admit, I forgot to ask the key question, which everybody always wants to know. And that would be, did you ever get shot at on those hundred missions when you flew into Vietnam? <laughs> yeah, it's, I think uh, the captain speaking is probably the only one who's ever asked me that question because uh, the reality of flying over North Vietnam was that it was rarely a mission that you weren't shot at. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm surprised they, they, you, don't, you don't get that question because I get the one about do you, when you're an airline captain, have you ever had any serious emergency happen and they want to know all about it. So I'm surprised nobody's asked you that. <laughs> well, the truth is, of course, that the, uh, the North Vietnamese society was filled with people on the ground with rifles, with uh, triple a guns on the ground with 57 millimeters uh, with uh, surface air missiles and with MiGs. so there was uh, there was an entire structure of air defense systems 
that uh, that we were flying through all the time. And so, and, and you, you, I think you said earlier that it was like uh, several times per flight or whatever. How, what what did you actually have to maneuver out of the way? And if so, what what kind of warning did you have? Visual or? Well, let me just tell you one story that actually I'll, I'll never forget this date. Um, it was April 23rd, um, 1966. Um, Bill Cooper was the commander of the 469th, and I was the operations officer. We never flew at the same time by policy. So when he was flying, I was on the ground and vice versa. Well, he was flying on April 23rd inbound with a flight. of. He was leading a flight of four going from Haiphong uh, into Hanoi. And they were cruising along the four of them, and all of a sudden the the wingman picked up the uh, the radar signals that they knew was a surface air missile, and so they 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 called the number one Cooper, and of course Coop <laughs> Coop was a World War II pilot. He didn't believe in in jinking to get out of the way of anything. He wanted to go straight to the target. So jinking so would he, be to to turn off course. Well, no, jinking is more than that. Jinking is when you know somebody is shooting at you uh, and you got to get out of the way of whatever it is they're shooting at you. So, yeah, that's what I mean. So you're going to do some serious maneuvering, and you're saying that he's one of those to, to hell with him and going straight ahead types. Right. Okay. And the, what, was happening, what was happening is that the uh, Jimmy Jones was the uh, – one of the wingmen, and he was he was monitoring his electronic equipment. It was, they knew Cooper was not because he never even turned the equipment on when it was flying. He didn't care. So, <laughs> Irrelevant. So they they started giving him messages, and the when when the uh, tracking radar system went from one level to the next level, they knew that they there was about to be a. Sam missile launched, and so they called Cooper again and said uh, we're being tracked uh, with the missile. Well, nothing happened, and finally they could tell that the missile had been launched at the, at them. So Jimmy Jones called the other other flight to break, and which they did. Cooper did not. He kept straight and level, and was hit right in the middle of the belly with a surface air missile. He he was declared uh, MIA for quite a long time, and finally KIA. The unfortunate thing is, the same day, Jerry Driscoll, Lieutenant Jerry Driscoll, was shot down, and he ended up uh, five years as a POW. Oh gosh, yeah, that didn't turn out very well then. No, and that, uh, that that's the day that I became the commander because we came on the back on the ground and Cooper was gone. And so the, the wing commander came in that night and said, well, okay, Bob, you got it. So the, to the extent that you did not get hit and you used jinking maneuvers, as you describe it, uh, you were successful is what you're saying. Well, yeah, and every fighter pilot, of course, knew that there's there's an interesting story in the beginning of the war where we were too, 65 and 66, where the uh, 
Johnson and McNamara had Tuesday luncheons where they personally picked out the targets, the the, the primary targets, the, in the, the top mission targets. Pre- President Johnson <laughs> and uh, Secretary of Defense McNamara? Yeah, okay. they personally picked the targets. They not only picked out the targets in those early days, but they picked out the tactics of how you got to the targets, <laughs> which they were became involved. A, well, and and of course, uh, it became a tremendously huge issue because the, the first tactics were okay. Well, you're flying along and you're fully loaded, so you're probably only about twelve thousand feet, and you got three flights of four, and you're one minute apart, going straight in from uh, from Haiphong or from from the border down south uh, into Hanoi. And of course, as soon as you do that, the the enemy is tracking you and shooting you down. So that was happening too frequently for us. What It got so serious that our wing commander, Sabre Sams, called up Saigon 7th Air Force and said, we aren't flying tomorrow. <clears throat> and they said, well, why not? And he said, I got to come down and talk to you about uh, about tactics, which he did. And he got their attention. They sent it back to Washington, and that began to change the control of actual operations to people on the ground. Wow, wow, very interesting. Well, that that was the key question, Bob. I sure appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I I called him just about the time of his dinner, so uh, Bob was very gracious to. Bear with me, and uh, I'm sure the audience will love hearing this. Thanks so much, Bob. Well, when the captain speaks, people (laughs) respond. (laughs) There you go. I I hope the audience feels the same way. You have a great evening, Bob. I'd like So during the closing years of the Vietnam War, I too flew across Southeast Asia as a U.S. naval aviator flying the Rockwell T-39 Sabre Liner. That's a seven-passenger twin jet that the Navy used to transport two- and three-star Navy admirals and Marine Corps generals across the Western Pacific Theater circa 1975. I did indeed travel to Vietnam, Laos, and other hot spots, but thankfully I was never shot at, although I definitely heard cannon fire in the distance whenever I remained overnight in the area. During my time overseas, I was fortunate enough to experience pretty spectacular flying across the region. The Philippines, to include Manila, Cebu, and Baguio, the silver trading mountain resort, I flew to Bali, Indonesia, Malaysia, and I picked up an amazing lion emblazoned batik t-shirt in Singapore. In Bangkok, Thailand, I rode an elephant, witnessed cobra snake charmers on the streets. I flew to Okinawa countless times, stayed overnight at the amazing Grand Hotel in Taiwan, purchased sweaters in Pusan, South Korea, enjoyed the amazing nightlife in Seoul, Korea, and I rode the Japanese Shinkansen bullet train round trip from Tokyo to Kyoto. But the best shopping trips in the area were always to Hong Kong, so I have to share my experiences flying into what is famously remembered as one of the most challenging airports in the region, if not the world, Hong Kong's Kai Tak International Airport. 
there are two reasons why Kaitak became such a tourist attraction in its own right. For one, you only need to Google the airport to see the eye-popping pictures of 747s and other massive aircraft passing extremely low over downtown skyscrapers as they maneuver their way into Kaitak International. That was because of the second reason. You see, the Kaitak Airport approach path was really quite demanding. Normally, airports use a common instrument landing system we know as an ILS. This is a very precise navigational tool designed to guide pilots to a safe landing on a specific runway at a specific airport under conditions of very low visibility. Beginning 10 to 15 miles from the runway, a cockpit display provides pilots with aircraft movement left or right of the ideal approach course. Not only that, but the system simultaneously indicates when an aircraft is descending too quickly or not quickly enough so that the aircraft will arrive at the runway at the right altitude, perfectly aligned for a picture-perfect landing even in dense fog. Well, because of local terrain issues at KaiTak, they call the same ILS system an IGS. Rather than an instrument landing system, it was subtly renamed as an instrument guidance system. Why? Because the system didn't guide planes quite to the landing runway at all, or even to the airport itself. No, the KaiTak IGS precisely guided arriving pilots to a large aviation orange and white colored checkerboard painted on the side of a mountain. The very first time I flew this approach, I knew it was serious. Aside from the treacherous terrain, the charts warned of, a nearby, of nearby Chinese islands, such that an off-course aircraft might be fired upon without warning. Keep in mind, Hong Kong was under the authority of the British in 1975, but the Cold War was in full swing, and it included not only the Soviet Union, but also China. So it was no small matter to arrive in a U.S. military jet, possibly carrying an admiral aboard, and inadvertently stray close enough to Chinese territory to draw fire. The chart also warned that if the checkerboard could not be spotted in a timely fashion, then pilots must execute an immediate climbing turn to the right to avoid terrain. Assuming the checkerboard did come into view, pilots were then instructed to abandon the instrument approach altogether at less than 1,000 feet above the ground and to continue with a descending right turn all the while looking about 40 degrees to the right in order to align with landing on runway 13, which extended from the city shoreline and onto a reclaimed sliver of land jutting out into Kowloon Bay. What many people don't know is the astounding history of this famous airport. It is very much as amazing as the low turn to final overhead the rooftops of Kowloon City. Back in 1912, Sir Ho Kai and Mr. Ao Tak, two Chinese businessmen, 
purchased a strip of coastline in the area intended to reclaim land and build residential housing. But the idea never really took off, with no pun intended. The local government eventually took possession of the land, and soon the idea of developing the coastal land as a small airstrip took root. And the first plane took off on the Lunar New Year holiday in 1925. A flying club followed, and soon authorities constructed a concrete slipway at the shoreline to accommodate flying boat operations. In 1935, a control tower was added, and only a year later, the fledgling airport hosted international flights to Britain, domestic flights serving Southeast Asia, and soon even Pan Am Clipper Service began operations to San Francisco, and many other major carriers soon followed suit. Everything was going great, and then came December 7, 1941, the day U.S. President Roosevelt declared would be a date that shall live in infamy. Not only did Japanese bombers attack Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, but only hours later they also bombed Hong Kong's bustling airport. Over the next three days, the Japanese relentlessly shelled the airport from strongholds they held in nearby Chinese territories, which they had already held from the Second Sino-Japanese Wars from 1937. Though the British, assisted by Indians, Canadians, and Hong Kong locals, fought valiantly, the Japanese fully occupied the airport at the end of the three-day battle. The Japanese immediately set about to expand the airport. They used the slave labor of POWs and locals to build the longer runway 1331 into Kowloon Bay as a base for their heavy bombers. Many people died after being beaten, starved, or executed. With important ancient monuments like the Kowloon Wall of 960 AD and another for the last Song Dynasty boy emperor from the 13th century, all used as a landfill for the new runway. In 1945, the United States dropped atom bombs on two Japanese cities, which forced the surrender of the Japanese and the return of the Hong Kong airport to British rule. In 1946, an Australian aviation group began Cathay Pacific, which grew to become Hong Kong's largest carrier, and in 1947, the Royal Navy formed a naval air station known as the Flycatcher. During the mid-50s, local authorities further expanded the runway to 8,350 feet, just in time to accept Pan Am's all-new Boeing 707 jetliner as their latest clipper service upgrade. By the 1960s, the airport helped propel Hong Kong into the major international bastion of capitalism we know today. In 1974, about the same time that my Southeast Asia tour began, the runway was extended once again to 11,130 feet. A large terminal was constructed, and the famous checkerboard approach was added just in time for the arrival of Boeing 747s. 
Despite the hairy approach to runway 13, or maybe because of it, the airport operated quite safely over the years. There were a couple of accidents that did stand out, though. One was a China Airlines 747 that attempted to land during a typhoon. After touching down two-thirds the length of the runway, it ran off the end and into the water, injuring 23 people. By 1990, Kai was the busiest single runway airport in the world. Not only 747s, but also the supersonic Concorde landed here. But with 20 million passengers a year, there was nowhere to grow. So in 1998, a new airport was constructed on a large island 15 miles west of the city and connected to downtown by a high-speed train. And Kai Tak's last flight departed July 6, 1998. The runway and terminals were closed, and today all that remains is a long park where the runway once stood, a cruise terminal, and a fading checkerboard still visible on the side of a hill on the west side of downtown. One of the things I hear most from people who ask about the airlines is how they can become a flight attendant. So I thought it would be interesting to bring in a flight attendant for us to talk about that career and exactly what's going on in the airlines today. Uh, but so we get honest answers. I asked a good friend of mine who actually has flown for two airlines. Right now he flies for a major regional uh, airline and uh, but I'll let him speak for himself. Mystery guest, are you there? I'm here. Great. All right. Well, so many people want to know about how do you become a flight attendant. Tell us about your story and, and how you got where you are now. Um, actually, it's as simple as applying. Um, ironically, I got both of my flight attendant jobs by going on Indeed. Uh, both of them were just spur of the moment things. I just happened to be browsing, and I saw them. I clicked them, got the interview, and I was hired. You were hired on originally with a uh, international carrier, is that right? Which is surprising. Yes. And uh, was that process any different for when you applied to the domestic carrier? Much different, actually. Um, all the interviews were face to face. The first interview consisted of a swim test before I even interviewed with the company. So I went there in my suit, took my suit off, jumped in the water, and then went and sat for an interview afterwards. Now, is this the domestic company or the international one? That was the international company. Okay. And then you flew for them for a period of time, and eventually you went to the domestic carrier. It's a well-known carrier. We won't mention that either. We want to get a gen just a generic idea. So um, tell us about that experience. Um, it was different, to say the least. You apply, and um, you get a video interview, and then you get a telephone interview, and then you go to training. What's a video interview? It. Video interview is when they send you a uh, a link to a website that asks you a series of questions, pre-recorded questions, and you answer them to the best of your abilities, and you click submit. 
all while being filmed. You have to be filmed in a quiet place in uniform attire, hair done, you know, suit, tie, all of it. So eventually you get through that interview process. When you go in in person, uh, how is that different for you? What what sorts of questions did they ask? What kind of people do you think they were looking for? Why did they pick you? In regards to the domestic area? Well, you can talk about either one you like. Just make it clear which one. Well, with the international carrier, um, I'm not quite sure what stood out about me. Uh, what I do understand is that they needed a lot of people right away, and there weren't a lot of people that applied because it wasn't something that was, uh, they weren't a well-known company at the time. It was very uh, grassroots, if I may so there weren't a lot of people that applied. So most of us that did apply ended up getting the job. That's the international carrier. Now, the regional carrier, um, I, again, I can't say what made me stand out. Again, it was a very small training class, so I'm thinking maybe that. I know they were looking to expand shortly after I got hired. But um, as far as a face-to-face -face interview with them. I never went through a face-to-face -face selection process with them. Everything was over the computer or over the telephone. I should so point I out the, the, the mystery guest does have experience with the medical field, and that no doubt made you stand out, if nothing else. So tell us about the actual you'd be, you'd training you went through. You'd be surprised to know that they didn't know that I had any medical training until I actually got to training. You mean I the training with the airline? Okay, okay. Exactly. Okay, so I, I didn't mention it. I didn't mention it uh, because, as I was saying, I, I applied for those jobs just willy nilly, so I never mentioned it, and I never had to submit a resume. So they didn't know anything about it until I actually got to training for both of those positions. All right. So let's assume it was for your good looks and charm. So tell us, <laughs> uh, tell us about uh, the actual training experience. What did you actually? go through in order to actually with, fly on the line? With the international carrier, uh, you did have to do a series of swimming events, uh, getting into a life raft, things of that nature. Um, it was very academic. They teach you about what makes a plane fly. They teach you about ATC. Um, they, they teach you about uh, respecting the pilots and and how tough and tedious it is, even though they may just be sitting up front, that it's a mental thing with the pilots. And, you know, a 14-hour flight is a 14-hour flight. You know, it's not just a 14-hour nap. So they teach you a lot of things that you feel like may be out of your scope. Um, also, a lot of safety-related things, first aid. Um, and this is all with the international company. First aid was top priority and emergency situations. Um, where the emergency equipment is located on the aircraft. I should mention that it was a 787, so that's a 300 and some odd people plane. So you have a lot of uh, lives in your hands, so you need to know where everything is and be able to recite it verbatim. And not just only memorize it, but know where to go and get it from on the plane. Now with the regional, it's a totally different story because it's a smaller aircraft. Um, they do go into detail about safety-related things. It's mostly safety-related, but it's not so strenuous as um, as the international carrier was because there's not so much to remember. Um, if you're just now starting out your flight attendant journey, it will seem like it's tough, but it's one of those things that's very mental. You just you got to put yourself 
I don't know how to what mode you need to be in, but don't be in one that's going to stress you out because it's it's not designed to make you fail like most people think. It's designed to make you pass because they're hiring people because they need people. So everyone goes with the attitude that, oh, they don't want us. They want to, you know, they're just trying to make it hard to fail. No, it's very easy if you have the right mindset. Part of this is meant to get you out on the line as soon as possible, and, and some companies like these international carriers will probably stress the service as well. Is that correct? Whereas the regional has uh, their procedures that each of these companies use. You'd be surprised to know that neither one of those jobs stress service. We did very little on service and training. Now we know why the service is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. You know, a lot of people think you go there and you learn how to sling Cokes and crackers, but that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, with Norwegian, I don't remember ever going over service with Norwegian. Um, we had a service guide, and we just read the service guide and did things according to the guide. And then after a while, you get into a groove. Um, also with Norwegian, we did hot food, so, you know, we had to learn how to use the ovens. But that's about it. As far as how to serve and you know, all of that we didn't go over. Just be polite and get the people what they want. With um, the the domestic carrier, it was a lot less service. Um, we did not really, we spent, I think, a total of three or four hours on service over the course of a month. Okay, let's switch so, gears a little bit. For for people who are not interested in becoming a flight attendant, but they're thinking about boarding an airplane again, and in this uh, post-COVID-19 world, they're a little bit nervous about all of that. The, the end of the last show, I had a brief discussion from a, uh, a reporter about the safety of breathing the air on the airplanes, and I think that pretty well covered that that's not the issue. But what's the experience like for a passenger from the moment that they arrive at the terminals? Uh, what what are they? What can they expect? First of all, be prepared to don a mask. Most airlines right now are not permitting passengers to board an aircraft without a face covering or mask of some sort. Um, also, they are socially distancing everyone, even in the line. Um, I've seen people get yelled at not being far enough apart from the passenger in front of them and they're doing uh they're staggering the seats especially on the larger aircraft they're not using the middle seats at all and now that the aircraft are filling up um they are using every row but the middle seat will be open um service is almost non-existent um don't look forward to having anything to drink or eat I know there are some carriers that are prepackaging. There's a large carrier that will remain nameless that is prepackaging snacks and a bottle of water and handing them to the passengers as they board. Um, I guess it also depends on your flight attendants because I have been on flights where they pass them out during the flight as well, but they're trying to minimize contact with the passengers at all costs. Um, uh, that's about all. It's it's just a very vanilla service. There's nothing spectacular about it. You're going to get from point A to point B. Also, if you find yourself in a position now, they're only filling the planes up to, I think, the most any carrier is doing is about 80%. If you find yourself 
in a situation where you're about to buy a ticket on an aircraft that is almost at capacity, they will warn you that that aircraft is only going to be filling up to 85% and allow you to, you know, maybe make a change or, you know, fly at a later time or an earlier time. The idea being to keep a certain separation between the passengers, I presume. Exactly. If there is a problem on the aircraft and you have to move a passenger, what would you do in that case where maybe there wasn't enough room to keep them at a distance? Well, that's all sorted out at the gate. So that would not uh, affect me. All of the seats are done by the computer, and the computer separates them uh, by some sort of, I guess, CDC guideline. I guess that was input into the computer. I'm not sure. Um, that's I'm not privy to that information. But when the seats come out, they are properly done. Now, if a person ends up side by side, it's because they moved there. Got you. Now, if that happens and the two passengers are okay with it, there's no problem. But then obviously there's no problem. if they don't know each other and somebody does that, it could be a big problem. The passengers are supposed to keep the masks on the entire time, yes? Um, You're asked to. You're not required to because how do you eat your snack, you know? <laughs> but you're, you're asked to, especially when boarding, you're asked to keep your mask on now. I'll say that some people have been very lax about the mask thing because I've seen passengers get on without a mask, but the general rule is that you are to be masked when flying. So don't take a chance and not wear a mask and then, you know, be upset when you get turned away. Just take a mask. Even myself, when I'm uh, flying for leisure, I have a mask in my bag. If they ask me to put it on, I don't talk back. I put it on and I take it off when I can take it off. You're talking about as you ride up aboard as a passenger. Exactly. Got you. All right, mystery guest, thank you so much for that insight. Is there anything more you want to tell us that the passengers ought to know before they head out to the airport? Yes. Um, there's been a big controversy with gloved hands. I just wanted to say to people, if you are going to wear gloves, be prepared to continue to change those gloves out between activities. If you're not going to be able to change those gloves out, the safest thing for you to do is to take a bottle of hand sanitizer or be in a position to wash your hands frequently. The lavatories on a plane are cleaned. However, once one person goes in there, that lavatory is now contaminated. When you go into a lavatory with those gloves on, and you walk back out with those same gloves on, now you're contaminating the entire aircraft. Everything you touch is now contaminated. So while I like gloves in a hospital setting because you have an abundance of them to continue changing them, just wearing gloves in, in the grocery store or on an airplane is not very helpful at all. In my, in my opinion, especially being someone that's worked in a hospital, and I know that gloves transmit diseases when you wear them. We're not even allowed to wear gloves from one room to the next room, one patient room to the next room. So why would you feel that it's okay to wear gloves from home to the grocery store to the airport onto a plane? It's not good. Good point. Uh, I see that even even around the, the stores that most people seem to be going with a mask on, but they leave the gloves off. Because, and what you have to do is just frequently wash your hands after, like you exactly. said, every activity. Exactly. All right.
Well, that was very informative. Appreciate you taking the time from your busy flight schedule to talk to us on uh, This Is Your Captain Speaking. Well, once again, we're at the end of this week's podcast. So until next time, put out the word that this is your captain speaking. I'm Jay Rollins.